Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everybody. This is Slash Film Daily for July 7th, 2017. This is Peter Soretta. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about a few things in the water cooler. We'll be talking about a new podcast and a board game. In the news, we'll be talking about the most iconic shot in the Spider-Man Homecoming trailer and why it isn't in the movie. Um, Matt Reeves has been talking a lot about his upcoming Batman movie, so we'll delve into that. Kevin Feige explains a cool Easter egg in Spider-Man Homecoming. And in the mailbag, we will attempt to answer what really counts as a spoiler. And after that, we will have a spoiler section where Jack Drew will join us to talk about the hidden movie references of Baby Driver. And we'll give you a complete spoiler warning there. But right now on the line, I have Ben Pearson from SlashFilm.com. Ben, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Peter? Good. What have you been up to lately, Ben? So in uh, the most recent edition of The Water Cooler, the feature that we run on the site every week, uh, I talked about a new podcast or a relatively new podcast called The Secret History of Hollywood. And I've been burning through these episodes, uh, some of which, Peter, I kid you not, are eight hours and 58 minutes long uh, for a single episode. People complain when we go over 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. This is serious stuff. Talk about deep dives. This podcast is incredible. I would highly, highly recommend it to anybody who loves uh, movies and podcasts, which I assume is a lot of people listening right now. So this is much more of a... um, uh, of a story like the the guy who created the podcast his name is Adam Roach I believe that's how you pronounce it and it's basically just a one man show one man operation he like you know writes researches does the whole thing himself produces the show and he's the only voice on it except for actually in this a couple of the most recent episodes Mark Gatiss who is you might recognize as um, one of the characters on Sherlock he was uh, in a couple episodes of Game of Thrones he um is like a, a celebrity who has latched on and, and realized that, the, you know, the potential of this podcast and he's actually lended or lent his voice to a couple of the more recent episodes. But for the most part, it's a one man show. And he uh, speaks in a, a much more of a, a storytelling type of way, whereas Karina Longworth, I think, is more of a um, has more of a. Um, an overview of the history. It's more fact based and and uh, 
the secret history of Hollywood is more of like, um, you know, you're listening, you're sitting around a campfire almost like listening to someone spin a tale and like, it's all true, but it's the, the way that the information is conveyed is, um, is very different. Um, and as evidenced by an eight hour long, you know, nine hour long podcast episode, um, they really, you know, take the time to dive into every little, you know, crevice of, uh, the various subjects that they cover. So um, one of the series uh, covers the dual rise of the Warner Brothers with uh, actor James Cagney, which was really fantastic. I think that one's like three or four parts long. And then the one that they're doing right now, which is uh, just wrapped up its second episode, is about a producer named Val Luton, who I don't really know much about, but worked on Gone with the Wind and a bunch of stuff with David O. Selznick back in the day. So um, it is, uh, it is, yeah, one of the best podcasts that I've heard that has any do with movies and i would highly highly recommend it wow now i want to listen to this podcast but i'm afraid to put it yeah. on my podcast app yeah. uh, of choice <laughs> which is overcast um what i've been up to lately is um over the holiday i had a few friends over including jeff canada from the slash film cast and we played some board games but i wanted to mention one board game in particular called escape from 100 million bc and it's from igw game or idw games um and it's uh from designer kevin wilson who did Descent, Arkham Horror, Game of Thrones, the board game. So a bunch of uh, great games. But the reason why you listeners might be interested in this, it's a time travel board game. And all the players are working together. You have uh, tried to attempt to time travel, and you've somehow landed in 100 million BC, and your time machine has exploded all over the prehistoric era. And you need to recover not only your the pieces of the time machine, but also equipment that has scattered, um, you know, among the dinosaurs and among, you know, this world, uh, uh, this prehistoric prehistoric world. And uh, basically, you don't want any piece of evidence that you were there to have, you know, caused any paradoxes. That's awesome. Because if you leave, you know, a Snickers wrapper or a gun that, you know, fell out of the time machine, whatever, you know, that could potentially cause big problems and you landing there has also opened these time uh these time i forget what they call them time holes that basically when you start like causing these paradoxes these castaways from other times end up getting sucked into that time so you could have historical figures like abraham lincoln and if you can't return him back to the future you're you know History is forever changed. So it's, oh, it's just, awesome. Yeah, it's this adventure where you're all working together and uh, you, you not only have to get all the pieces of the time machine, but you also have to, you know, you're going to have encounters with dinosaurs, but you don't want to kill the dinosaur because if you kill the dinosaur, it's like, you know, it's it's the butterfly effect. Yeah, yeah. It, it, sure. It's basically Sound of Thunder, the game, if you've ever read that book or God help you watch that movie. The movie's horrible. <laughs> the book is good. It, it, it's that. Anyways, let's get into the news. People aren't here to listen to us talk about podcasts or board games. <laughs> First up, m- director Matt Reeves is going around promoting War for the Planet of the Apes, but everybody's asking him about The Batman, his next film starring Ben Affleck as of right now. He discussed having ideas for a possible trilogy, but also that he wants the first film to be a more emotional Batman movie. And I think you've wrote up part of this at slash film.com. What do we have, Ben? 
Yeah, so basically he's uh, compared the world of Batman and the world that Caesar inhabits in his Planet of the Apes movies and said that these are both sort of damaged characters who are grappling to do the right thing in an imperfect world, um, which I think is a, an apt comparison between those characters. And he also um, he praised Christopher Nolan's approach to the movie. And I've, I'd recently read uh, a book about Batman um by uh, Glenn Weldon, and it was about the rise of nerd culture and the history of Batman. And so the, one of the things the book talks about is how there's n there's no real wrong approach to The Dark Knight, but uh, the modern era um, interpretation of Batman has very much slanted toward the Nolan verse. And I think fans are going to be happy to hear that, uh, or fans of Nolan's movies anyway, which is most people are going to be happy to hear that uh, Matt Reeves seems to be taking a page out of Nolan's playbook where he wants to tell a story that has deep emotional resonance and is thematically interesting while also being, you know, the sort of noir driven detective story, um, you know, Batman mystery kind of movie on the surface, but also, yeah, sort of digs in and, and uh, you know, covers uh, adult themes underneath the cover of that fantasy. He is saying that they're planning a trilogy. Uh, he says that this first film is, you know, the vital first story that they're concentrating on. You know, what? I know there's a lot of hate out there in the current film climate of studios and filmmakers planning the cinematic universes. But to me, I... I, when I hear a director or a filmmaker of Matt Reeves' level say that they're planning for a, a trilogy arc, that makes me happy because I, as much as I, you know, want a complete story in a film, I love, you know, the the Planet of the Apes trilogy that we have right now, in my mm -hmm. mind, is the best trilogy since Indiana Jones. And it is that way because it kind of tells this really complete story and it, it's it in the age that we are now with tv and serialized storytelling i don't think it's always a sin when we're planning for the future yeah it helps yeah it, it helps that reeves is a great filmmaker and has proven you know with these apes movies that he can pull off uh envisioning a big world and executing it in a satisfying uh a satisfying way both you know, on the action end and on the thematic end. So I think what a lot of people, the pushback comes when people are like, okay, let's grab these, you know, properties out of, uh, that are, you know, free IP basically, you know, King Arthur and whatever, and just like set up uh, a half-assed cinematic world that way and promise you, you know, oh, nine more movies are coming after this, but without really putting enough thought into the first movie to make anybody give a crap about the rest of them. So I think Reeves is, is one of those guys where you're right, the caliber of filmmaker that he is and he, you know, he has the history behind him to the, the resume, the proof is right there in the work that he's already done that, yeah, he can execute this stuff if he goes into a project with, uh, with a vision for multiple movies in a row. So next in the news is one of the most iconic shots in the Spider-Man Homecoming trailers isn't actually in the movie. And this isn't a spoiler to tell you that something isn't in the movie. But there's a shot in all the Spider-Man Homecoming marketing campaign where it shows Spider-Man and Iron Man flying through the New York City side by side. And this mm -hmm. moment never happens in the film. You wrote this article for SlashFilm.com. How did this moment come about? Yeah, so um, John Watts, the director, uh, spoke with Matt Singer over at Screen Crush, and Matt asked uh, about 
these moments. There's, there's that moment and there's one shot also where the vulture sort of comes, crashes down through a, a hotel atrium. And Watts was talking about basically how that atrium shot was created for like a Comic-Con sizzle reel a couple years ago or a year ago or whatever before they had really shot um, a considerable amount of footage had only been filming for a couple weeks and that was never really meant to be in the movie. And then the, um, the iconic shot of Spider-Man and Iron Man swinging through the city, um, was actually supposed to be, that was, you know, from the marketing department, they said they wanted a shot of those two together and then they were going to use something, uh, from the movie during the Staten Island ferry sequence, which I'm, has also been featured heavily in the trailers, but uh, Watts just didn't think it looked very good. So he, I think, shot a separate plate of just the city um, and then, you know, had his team sort of composite those characters into that um, just to create that shot specifically for the marketing. So this is not, uh, you know, any sort of diabolical thing. It happens all the time. Um, you actually mentioned, uh, you know, Rogue One, a Star Wars story being a big example, big recent example of a, another movie doing sort of similar tactics. And, and th- that had it twofold because it had some footage that was from deleted scenes that weren't ended, didn't end up being used in the film. But mm-hmm. it also had like these outtakes that Gareth Edwards captured in between takes, like the most iconic of Jin in front of those lights and that imperial, you know, lighting up mm-hmm. yep. um, that was like basis for most of the marketing campaign. But the one thing in particular is the shot of Jin walking towards the TIE fighter on top of the Citadel Tower, something mm-hmm. that was never in the movie. And if you w- listen to interviews and stuff with the filmmakers and stuff, they, they kind of tiptoe around it and they're like, oh, that was something we were playing around with. But the truth of the matter, and I've confirmed this with multiple sources, is that Disney marketing needed a kind of visceral shot to put in the trailers and they yeah. basically took that footage and invented it had ilm invented it. If, if you look at the footage Jin doesn't even look up at the tie fighter that's coming in front of her it's because there was never supposed to be a tie fighter there yeah so that seems way more egregious than this shot because even though that the shot from spider-man homecoming is not in the movie there's plenty of iron man in the movie and it doesn't really change the story in any significant way there was a i remember in the, the trailer for the transporter, the Jason Statham movie from the early 2000s, that there's the scene where he deflects a missile that's shot into his kitchen by using a uh, like a dinner platter, and he deflects the missile into an oven and it explodes. And that's what I saw in the trailer, and I was like, holy crap, I have to see this movie. And then that scene is not even in the film at all. So that's what I felt. That's where I felt like. Uh, taken advantage of and I I tried to talk I was like I don't know very young at the time and I talked to the uh, the manager of the theater and I was like trying to talk to them about getting my money back because of false advertising and they're like it doesn't work that way I'm not giving you your money back but um, (laughs) but uh, but yeah that was a big uh, a big moment for me where I was like oh not everything from the trailers is always going to be in the movie moving on from that another spider-man homecoming news tidbit and we have this on the site I want to warn you this is not a spoiler I would not consider this a spoiler. This is casting. Jennifer Connelly is part of Spider-Man Homecoming, part of the cast of Spider-Man Homecoming. She has a a voice role in the movie, and she was a late addition to the cast. I talked to producers Kevin Feige and Amy Pascal last week about her addition to the film, and you can hear that right now. Uh, Peter, well done. We've been doing this for two days. We are one person to say that. a female boy 
the Peter that the Tony is programmed into it, and it's, it actually came about pretty quickly. We were talking about we were talking about who could who could do it, and she popped up for two for three reasons. One, she's a great actress; could do anything she wants. Two, she um, inhabited some of those classic '80s films that helped to inspire us behind the scenes. And three, and most meta, she's married to Jarvis. Right. So so basically it's just kind of a fun bit of casting because Jennifer Conley is the real life wife of the guy that plays Jarvis. And I, I don't think she's going to end up playing Jarvis's wife in the movie because they already have an actress that played Jarvis's wife in uh, Agent Carter, the TV show. And uh, it looks nothing like Jennifer Conley. But um, and it's also a, a fun reference because there's so many references to 80s movies, some of which Jennifer Conley was a part of. Yeah, that's really cool. I also didn't think about that connection, but uh, but Connolly does a really good job as the the suit lady in this movie. Suit lady. It was funny when, when the first press screening of this happened. Um, after the first press screening, they they released the press notes and it had the full cast list, which had some spoilers. So watch out on the internet. But um, one of the the lists on listings on the, the cast list was Jennifer Connolly, and almost everybody at the press screening was like on Twitter, like she's not in the movie. There's no one named Suit Lady in the movie. Um, so it's not even a thing that if you saw the movie, you'd be like, oh, look, there's Jennifer Connelly. It's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but speaking of which, I put this article on SlashFilm.com, and we got quite um, a few replies on Twitter uh, complaining of spoilers. And th- this is the topic of today's In the Mailbag. Um, Brian Banks asks, what really counts as a spoiler? Can a movie news site possibly cater to non-trailer watchers? So, I first want to say <laughs> that, and, and first appearances, if you didn't know Jennifer Connelly was in this movie and you see a headline that says Jennifer Connelly, you know, Kevin Feige talks about Jennifer Connelly in Spider-Man Homecoming, you might, alarms go off and you're like, oh no, they're ruining a big surprise. Mm-hmm. They're bringing her character from the Hulk into the Marvel Cinematic Universe or, you know, something, right? right? Um, uh, But that's not the case at all, obviously, um, as you've just heard. And when you see the film, you'll, you know, it's not a spoiler. Uh, But um, let's get to what is a spoiler? What what would you consider a spoiler, Ben? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I would say um, something that... uh, you know, maybe is revealed late in the movie, um, you know, something that the story hinges on or uh, something that's unexpected in the context of the story that you're being told. Um, you know, if somebody, you know, if, if, for example, the real Jennifer Conley played, I don't know, some major Spider-Man character and popped up, you know, five minutes before the movie came out, uh, then I would say, yeah, that might be that would that would probably be a spoiler. Um, but in the context that this is presented, uh, I would say that's definitely not a spoiler. Um, it's hard because I'm I'm spoiler averse, generally speaking, myself. And you're also and I, one of those people that like when, you know, you aren't writing up a trailer on SlashFilm.com, you're not watching it. Yes, that's true. So it's it's tough because uh, I love the theatrical experience and I love being able to um you know, have the movie uh, told to me in the context and that it was meant to be told. And I have always had this thing where 
maybe that transporter story I told earlier had something to do with that, actually, now that I think about it. But I think hmm. I've always had this thing where I've been waiting for the big moments that I've seen in the trailer uh, when I'm sitting there in the theater watching a movie. And sometimes if they happen or don't happen, I'm just sort of like checking them off of a mental list. And I would much rather sweep all of that away and just get swept away in the story that the, the movie is trying to tell. So that's my sort of take on it is if I'm not writing something up about a movie, I will definitely avoid a trailer for something that I'm interested in seeing. Um, if I still need to be convinced or something, for sure, I'll definitely watch it. But uh, for you know a new Nolan movie or whatever it is, um, I'm generally not going to watch the trailer unless I have to for to write about it. See, I'm I'm a little bit of the opposite because I like the hype and I like the hype train and like you know love getting excited about movies mm-hmm. and you know I'll watch every trailer for the next Star Wars movie and you know, get excited about it and overanalyze it. And maybe that ruins the movie for me. I don't think it did. Um, but the, 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 I always say that my experience with, you know, Phantom Menace of having years of excitement, you know, geeking out, waiting in line for tickets, waiting in line for the movie, you know, all of that, even though the movie wasn't great, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world because it was a fun ride. Um, yeah as a fan. And, um, and I know that's not everybody would agree with that, but, um, I definitely of movies that I'm super excited about that. I don't want to geek out in that level. I'll still see the trip, like the teaser trailer because I, I like seeing what it's going to, you know, give, get a taste. Yeah. I'll do taste? the same thing. I'll watch teasers all day, but it, you know, it's when that you start getting into one, two, three, four full length trailers for something. It's like, if I'm already convinced at this point, I'm just ruining moments for myself. That's how I, how, how I consider it. But so, yeah. so why, why do you think this culture of spoiler phobia has, you know, kind of escalated the last, you know, five or 10 years? I feel like yeah, 10 years it, ago, I had not even heard of the word spoiler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I wonder if it's um, if it has something to do with the way that movies are being marketed. And like maybe I don't know. I don't know if I want to go as far as to say that movies um, that blockbusters are not as good now as they used to be. But there may be there might be something to the, the way that movies are marketed now Um it, they do tend to give away big set pieces, big moments that other, you know, previous trailer trailers and previous generations might not have done. I mean, if you go all the way back, if you go back to, I don't know, film noir movies in the the forties, fifties, sixties, whatever, um, trailers would give away the whole movie pretty much. Uh, but then there was a period in between there and I don't know, 1999 or something where, um, advertising did not give away every single plot beat but now i mean we've seen this with pre- previous spider-man movies actually where people have cut together well, every piece of marketing or material and come up with i don't know what you know 10 or 15 20 minutes of a movie that's been released before you get a chance to see it in a the theater so it's it's sort of um i think that has probably contributed to it just the sheer amount of information that is out there and consumable for people and then people uh, fandom is a passionate uh it's a passionate group of people, and sometimes they want to, you know, dive in and talk about this yeah. stuff openly on social media. And I think the rise of social media has has contributed to that as well. Sometimes you can't really opt out of conversations if you're not aware that they're happening until it's too late. So I don't, I don't know. I think it's a mixture of all of those things. 
I think you're right on both accounts. Uh, I think Twitter and Facebook have, you know, also the fact that we're watching TV shows not at the same time. We're time shifting and, you know, Netflix and, you know, I've watched all of Go uh, or uh, Glow and you haven't, you know, Mm -hmm. that that kind of thing. But so and you mentioned Spider-Man. Sony is notoriously bad at giving away way too much, trying to oversell like they're. So unconfident, it seems, yeah. in their marketing that they're like, please see the movie. You know, Spider-Man Homecoming gives away nearly the entire movie. Um, so I, I would suggest against watching those trailers. But um, I also wanted to mention that, you know, we we care about trailers. We care about spoilers on Slash Home. And we always try to keep the anything that's a spoiler out of the headline, out of above the jump. And we try to give proper spoiler warning before we Mm -hmm. get to it and i would hope see that's why like i I responded to these people that were upset over the spider-man homecoming uh jennifer connelly tweet headline uh because i would hope that people that read us know that we care so much about protecting spoilers and protecting a movie that uh you know that you trust us that we have earned your trust (laughs) um uh but um the, the other thing i wanted to talk about is can spoilers actually ruin a movie? And you mentioned sitting in a movie waiting for those tra- uh, trailer moments to come up. Mm-hmm. But my argument would be if it's a good story and a good movie, you aren't thinking about that. Do you know what I mean? If, if it's a good story and it's a good movie, you're into it and you're invested. And uh, that kind of stuff comes up when you have the slow moments that aren't working. <laughs> What, yeah, what I mean, I think I think my brain works weirdly, and I think there there are a lot of people that I've spoken with that have the same thing, where it's like yeah. even if I'm really into it, I'm still there's still this sort of nagging thing in the background. I can be like super into uh, the story and completely sucked in, but there's still this thing that that I can't shut off in my brain, where it's like I'm waiting on a couple of those moments to happen. And yeah, to some, you know, of course, in a bad movie where I'm just like my mind is wandering because the story is so terrible then it's a lot more noticeable but i think it's still there this nagging thing and i can't quite shake um I, but has that a, being said uh, oh go has, ahead has a spoiler ever ruined a movie or tv show for you um i don't mean you being uh, spoiled but you feel like you're robbed of that experience do you know what i mean yeah um i would say split was a recent example um and I guess and let's not uh, let's not delve yeah, into what that is. But right. I won't I won't spoil split the ending of split. But there is something that happens at the end of that movie that recontextualizes the uh, everything that you've seen before. And if I went into that movie uh, without knowing that I would have watched it one way and then I would have watched it uh, way one and then. Um, thought about it afterwards way two, right? Like having that that uh, uh, new information presented, but in in the way that I approached this movie, because I had it ruined for me beforehand, or or spoiled, or whatever you want to call it, I watched the movie all the way through, way to the first time. If that makes any sense. Um, oh, that totally makes sense. I had a friend that had a similar experience with The Sixth Sense. He knew about the ending before going to see it the first time, and he watched it, but he didn't feel like he was robbed of it. He still had an enjoyable experience because. I'm sure many people that have seen The Sixth Sense, which probably all of you out of there, I'm not going to spoil The Sixth Sense, but after seeing the movie once, if you see it again, you can rewatch it in a different context. Yeah. And yeah. it's still 
extremely enjoyable in that. Context. Yeah, and that's the thing is like I, you know, even uh, with Split, I still enjoyed the movie. I did; it wasn't ruined for me. So I think there are certain levels. Uh, Sixth Sense is always like the the big go to example, and that's one that I think the craft of filmmaking is so strong that even in that particular movie, that knowing the ending doesn't really hurt it that much. But it's just a it's it's a matter of. Um, a spectrum of enjoyment right and like the 10 of uh of that spectrum had been removed for me because i knew the ending beforehand i still hit you know an eight or whatever like a, you know yeah. a high reasonable level of uh of excitement and enjoyment of a movie but it's that 10 that i'm always chasing as a moviegoer so that's why i try to protect myself as much as i can to in order to give myself uh the highest odds of experiencing that 10 uh you know as much yeah. as possible um my view of things, I think, is completely different, um, and it's probably different than a lot of you, a lot of people out there. But my view is, these big twists are almost gimmicks in their own way, and that if a movie is, if a story is great, it will play for you no matter if you know that gimmick or that twist is coming. And I, I'll give you two examples: um, Empire Strikes Back, and mm-hmm. I will spoil this, but. You know, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. And um, I think anybody of my age or younger, and I think that would include you, Ben. Yes. uh, Who saw Empire Strikes Back probably knew that going into it. Probably heard the Luke, I am your father. You know, it had been all over the place. Mm -hmm. But that movie is still one of my favorite movies, even though I knew that going into it. And every time that moment happens and Luke yells no, it still resonates in me. And even... Even though I, you know, I was "quote unquote" robbed of experiencing that moment in the movie, and would I have liked to have experienced that in the movie? Sure, but it's still mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies. Even in every time I watch it, it's still great. Yeah, the the case can be made that um, that it's all in the execution, right? That uh, that it, it doesn't matter as much um, if the execution is great. My thing is, it's very rare that the execution for me that the execution is so good that it's uh it uh wipes away the that extra little push that i would have gotten um if i just saw it in context for the first time sometimes it does happen uh, like i think empire is a really good example um where the, just the filmmaking and everything else about the movie around it works so well that it just is like it becomes a non-factor but and yeah for some for some movies where the twist or whatever is more of a gimmick. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think there there can be uh, situations where that that um, sort of detracts from the overall experience because of that. But I think um, I don't know. I I have gotten. I will say that I've gotten more lax about it over the years. I used to be like very um, militant about you know not seeing things at all. If are, I are you, if I are you really like excited. Um, like Jeff Kanata of Slash Filmcast fame will. I, I've seen him at press screenings when if they show uh, trailers before it and he'll have mm-hmm. his fingers in his ear and his eyes closed and he'll be like humming really loud. Yeah. So to I avoid used, watching the trailers. I used to do that. Um, and now I, I've limited that to only things that I am like my most anticipated movies of the year. If I'm in a theater and there's a trailer and it's like, not the teaser trailer, but you know, one of the second or third trailers or whatever that's come out. Yeah. 
and I have purposely avoided it at home, I will actually do that. Um, but it really only happens, you know, two or three times a year now, whereas I used to do it all the time for like anything that I might be interested in. Now it's like I reserve those sort of uh, publicly embarrassing moments for for things where I hope that the uh, that it'll be worth it in the long run. <laughs> does how does the wife handle that? Does the wife look over um, it? <laughs> you know, she uh, she understands where I'm coming from, thankfully. Um, and she generally uh, I don't really she doesn't watch trailers until unless I show one to her because she knows that most of them are not great. Um, um, but, you know, we watched the most recent uh, trailer for Game of Thrones, for example, and we were just like both blown away, even though we're both really look looking forward to the new season. It was just like such an immaculately cr crafted thing that we had to appreciate it on that level and then, you know, throw caution to the wind when it comes to ruining particular, you know, potentially iconic shots that might yeah. come up over the course of the next season. It was just like, man, we got to watch this. So. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there are um, there are shades to this whole thing, as with as with everything, you know, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think most people are probably on your side on this one, um, but I would say consider Try to consider that it's the journey, not the destination, that you know matters. We know in most of these movies that the good guy is going to win and the bad guy is going to lose, and that right. does not ruin that experience at all. It's, right. it's how we get there and the, the the storytelling that is involved in the process. Um, speaking of spoilers, today in the spoiler room we have Jack Drew to talk about the hitting movie references in Baby Driver. But before that, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Ben? Uh, you can find me writing at SlashFilm.com, and you can track me down on Twitter at Twitter.com slash BenPairs. So today in our spoiler discussion, I have with me Jack Drew, who you know from SlashFilm.com, and we are going to talk about uh, some bits from Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. So if you have not seen the film, you might want to turn off the podcast right now, return once you've seen the film. It's not like a huge spoiler but it is you know further along in the film and it is a reveal so if you haven't seen the film please turn away now okay so what we're talking about is there's there's hidden movie references in baby driver that you may have not noticed their relevance and it's interesting because i didn't notice and in the film it actually plays into the part of the uh, part of the film and i didn't even notice that uh baby basically uses the line from Monsters, Inc. on Kevin Spacey's character. And I, I didn't notice that until it was revealed by Kevin Spacey's character because he found out from his uh, his nephew. Yeah, and I think he uses lines from Fight Club, It's Complicated, and uh, The Little Rascals, too. Yes, and that, 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 that's the basis of your thing. So t tell us about that. Where does that come into play in, in this film? Well, that I didn't notice until I saw Edgar Wright mention it in an interview. But once I started thinking about the connections between Monsters, Inc. and Baby Driver, like the whole idea of like a little kid in a world of monsters, and Mike Wachowski, that's the name, yeah, I believe? Yeah. Him doing the wrong job. Clearly, that's not his line of work. Like, it just felt relevant to Baby Driver. And then I started thinking about some of the other movies, and... To me, it was just Edgar Wright would not pick those movies randomly. Like, he probably oh, for picked sure. them with purpose. Ed Edgar Wright is known to throw hidden Easter eggs that you can find by exploring his films, you know, multiple times. You know, obviously in Scott Pilgrim's, there's all those X's that are all over the place. Mm. In Shaun of the Dead, there's that conversation between him and Ed that I think basically predicts the entire plot of the film. Um, so, uh, Edgar Wright is 
you know, that that's what he does, is he likes hiding references that make his films rewatchable. So what do these films that were on Baby's TV have to do with the plot of Baby Driver? Well, it's complicated hiding an affair, which Baby does. From I, I look at the crime family as his family. Like, when they're together, the way they interact, the way uh, John Hamm's character sticks up with him, almost like an uncle. And so he's hiding this relationship from them, just like it's complicated. They're hiding their relationship from everyone else. Uh, Little Rascals, I don't recall so vividly, but I just remember racing, obviously, being a huge part of that movie. And that's also... Yeah, they raced in, like, these boxcar things. Yeah, I think think that's the whole ending. And, uh, obviously, Little Kid in Love, so there's that. And what else is there? Fight Club, the idea of the narrator always trying to keep Marla out of his life or what he's doing in Project Mayhem, and then at the end she gets pulled into it. Um, and then, what was the other? Mon- well, yeah, I guess that's Monster it. Monster Sync, which is pretty obvious and you've already stated. Um, and I'm sure there's many other references in that movie that we have not noticed, but those... I was going to say, I know Walter Hill has a uh, voice cameo in it. I forget where. It's at the end, in in the court. He is like the court uh, announcer or court something. I saw it in the credits, and I was like, whoa. Um, Anyways, just interesting. If 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 you notice any other fun Easter eggs in... It writes Baby Driver. Please send it to us at peter at slash film dot com. And, oh, you have one more thing? Yeah. I was going to say, I just love stuff like that because it just makes the movie feel so much fuller. And to make a movie about a getaway driver that has, you know, references to Monsters, Inc. or It's Complicated that can have you yeah. thinking about it a few days later to me. I mean, that's just cool. And, and even for the more obvious one, the one that Kevin Spacey brings up later in the film... I didn't think that was gonna that was callback was gonna come back. It, it's interesting because it's used as like he's trying to change the channel away from a story on the news about one of his heists, right? Trying to keep uh, his uncle, uh, his stepdad, stepdad, stepdad. Uh, yeah. away from seeing that news. And I, I, I just discounted it as pure, just like oh, fun movie references. But no, there's something deeper to it all. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, just the way that joke's set up and paid off. I mean, it's a plot point in the movie Monsters, Inc. When he says that to him by the elevator, it's like, that moves the story along. Like, I just think that's so creative, and yeah, I guess that's all I gotta say. Jack, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Uh, Slash from Monday through Friday. Thanks for listening to today's edition of Slash Film Daily. I apologize that it is so long. We had intended this to be a much shorter episode but uh in the future we'll try to keep these under 30 minutes you can find more news at slashfilm.com you can subscribe to slash film daily at on itunes google play overcast or all the popular podcast apps the podcast is published every weekday bringing you the most interesting news from the world of movies and television and deeper dives into our great features from slashfilm.com we're still very much experimenting with this podcast so feel free to send your feedback to peter at slash home.com. And you can also submit your entries for inclusion in the mailbag at peter at slash home.com. Please leave your name and your general geographic location just in case we use your question on slash home daily. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.